No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. He'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Checking in for our first time in February 2019. Ralph, how are you? Well, the time is flying by. We are uh, we are on the precipice, but it's just flying by. So I'm excited. Easy for you, you to are. say. I thought that, that was the longest January <laughs> I have ever experienced. Well, you know, we actually uh, in this part of the country more or less escaped the so-called polar vortex, which I think is absolutely a real thing. And uh, one of the things I thought was interesting was the number of the, the amount of explaining about the polar vortex that went on and why it was still actually a sign of climate change. You know, because what had happened was that the, the, the increased warmth was actually disturbing that cap of cold air on the top of the planet and causing it to reach down further and mess with people in Chicago really badly. <laughs> Just people in Chicago. <laughs> well, that whole kind of strip of the upper Midwest there. But uh, yeah, no, it's but but we've managed to skirt that uh, here in this part. Um, although, you know, again, the consequences of these things are certain to have an effect yeah, um, I'm cold. I mean, you might not call it a polar vortex, but I yeah. am. I am certainly ready for warmer weather. I'm well. I'm not. I mean, I'm. I still have like kind of my upper Midwest mentality, which kind of believes that that kind of adversity is good for you. That actually having to struggle against weather actually builds character. Yeah, that does not make me popular. That's okay. That's okay. You're allowed. You're allowed to have that. But uh, people get people get very weird about things like that. Right. Um, I, I, I tend to just enjoy warm weather. That's yeah. It. Well, one, one other upper Midwestern thing I should mention here. Not too long ago, I, I had a birthday come and go. Congratulations. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, somebody who uh, is very close to me uh, decided to order for me Chicago pizza. Oh. And so, <laughs> and we're, we're Giordano's. We're of that so there's there's several different uh, ways that you can do the Chicago pizza thing, and we happen to be Giordano's Pizza for, you know, uh, deep dish stuffed pizza. So this box showed up, and inside the box were two frozen uh, Giordano's pizzas, and on top of them was a bag that had at one point contained dry ice, but all the dry ice had evaporated. It was actually in uh. a big styrofoam block that had the name Giordano's plastered all over the top. But that was the most awesome pizza I've had in a very long time. That is it was really, really good. cool. Even as a frozen pizza that you throw in the oven, it was awesome. So, And I think it's about a two-day turnaround from when they ship it to when you actually get it. So That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was That's a That's as good as Amazon thing. right there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I, I, I could prime some deep dish pizza and be very happy with yeah. myself. You know, there's this, have you been following this thing about how they're uh, paying the Amazon delivery people and kind of maybe skirting a little bit of their pay? You're they, joking. Isn't that scary? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so apparently what's happening. Amazon is screwing pe with people. They're, 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 apparently what's happening is that uh, delivery people 
uh, who are doing sort of those, you know, two hour turnaround delivery places uh-huh. and who are hired by the hour. So they're guaranteed like somewhere between 18 and $25 an hour to do this stuff. And, uh, and you can tip them, but what Amazon is doing is reducing the amount they're paying them by the amount of the tips. And the way they found this out is there are apparently a couple of employees who delivered things to themselves ah. and then tipped themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's really kind of clever, clever way to find out what's happening. So this is something that's still in the process of, of shaking out. Have you done that? Have you ordered anything to be delivered within two hours no, from I, Amazon? No, because I don't. I don't know if we. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't think that's a world yeah, I've ever lived in. That. It's that. I think that's more of like a large urban area thing, mm. but. You know, but, uh, you know, there's a great episode of, uh, of Hassan Minaj's show that talks about how actually the convenience of Amazon is, is something that allows us to ignore all of the ethical ramifications of the way the employees are treated and everything else. Yeah. So, well, speaking of ethical ramifications in Amazon, you want to talk Bezos? Let's talk Bezos. All right. Let's do it. So, uh, yeah. So there's a, a, a controversy a going on between Jeff Bezos and the National Enquirer. And um, what's what this is surrounding is uh, what apparently was what Bezos reports to be an attempt to extort him by the National Enquirer, who supposedly had some uh, incriminating photographs. Uh, part of this is that Bezos's personal life of late has, of course, been much in the news because of uh, an end to a, a, a long-term relationship. Uh, but now there's a battle going on where essentially the National so Bezos was uh, who. Uh, currently owns the Washington Post, was trying to find out how the Inquirer got these pictures. And so he was actually using pretty heavy-duty investigative resources, uh, somehow including Washington Post resources, to try to find out how this material became available. Um, And so then the National Inquirer said, stop the investigation or we're going to release all this stuff. So that's kind of where things are right now. And that's as of this morning, which is, you know, we're, we're talking Friday, February 8th. Uh, so this is a fairly quickly moving story and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it plays out. So, you know, it's like, so, you know, take a step back. There is one of the most despicable newspapers in the country that happens to have a fairly close relationship to the president of the United States, who's attempting to extort the richest man in the world. Who is writing a blog <laughs> post explaining all this, which right. is kind yeah. of weird. Yeah, it's kind of like a very strange James Bond film. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, it's just, it's it's all it's all very weird. I, and, I, and I think it's kind of interesting because thinking about what are the long-term ramifications of, you know, Amazon as a company of um, the convenience of all that of privacy, which has been transforming recently. Um, what's considered to be actually part of something that needs to be part of the public conversation versus maybe things that really shouldn't be for yeah. whatever reason. I mean, you expect that this is happening a century ago. This is just mobsters, and this is taking place behind the scenes, and someone saying, "You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break your finger." Yes. And then now it's not. We're we're literally reading a blog post from the richest. I mean, I have to repeat that the richest man in the world. Yeah. Uh, complaining about a a a uh, a news organization that has uh, limited credibility at best. I mean, it is. <laughs> And, and kind it's of a, a bad weird track world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, do we do we need to know any of this? Well, it's kind of it's kind of funny that you mentioned the organized crime connection because the other thing that's going on that's related to that is Michael Cohen's testimony, which keeps on getting postponed because he feels like his family is being threatened. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so there's all of these, you know, it's another, so one thing we can, you know, you can kind of try to speculate about again, as, as kind of a student of the media is what's the effect of Amazon on our, on, on our culture and our expectations and our access to media and everything else, you know, and, and in another way, what's been the ramifications of Martin Scorsese films? Because there's all this activity that looks exactly like what somebody in a Martin Scorsese film would say, or somebody from what, a, you know, from the Godfather, how they would articulate a threat, you know? Yeah. So, um, and, and so, and there's that interesting history of kind of the fascination with crime like that, which is a kind of a culture wide thing. It's a global thing too but you know we certainly have this infatuation with you know organized crime and you know sort of the relationship between that and family and and everything else and uh you know sort of like seeing the memes from scarface pop up everywhere you know in music and in images and on t-shirts and everything else it's just you know again it's another example of where the popular culture that we consume we kind of go through so quickly that we don't really ever have the time to kind of analyze well what does this mean what does it mean to find these people admirable <laughs> yeah <laughs> or as a model that you should copy or something like that yeah um there was a, a how quickly would you do you buy something on Amazon when you have the thought in your head of you know I need this two days is about the right time in which I can have it I could go to the store and and struggle to find it on the the shelf but I just prefer to have it sent to me I don't you know I I think that it's kind of weird because I think that for me anyway participating in retail has sort of lost all of its desirability to mm-hmm. me like actual brick and mortar stores to me are just no fun um i recently went to a mall in the area that's struggling it had uh one of its anchor stores just closed and there's a lot of empty spaces in the mall and uh i went there um to to you know with somebody who i'm close to to look for some stuff and it was just really kind of depressing um it, it, it's it's in that um, you know, the, the mall world uh, and everything that I've read is kind of split into aspirational upper middle class malls mm-hmm. who are doing well. And then all the other malls for regular folks that are just dying. And, uh, and, and, and so I don't know, how do you feel about that? Like, what's your, do you, do you still enjoy the retail world? Is it still something that you like to spend your time and energy in? Um, the actual brick and mortar retail world. I, I mean, I, 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 I do for some things. Uh, like I, mean, I enjoy going to the grocery store, but there are like some occasionally some specialty stuff that I just can't find there. You uh-huh. know that I feel like I have to get online. To my original question of how quickly do you yeah, order quickly. something? Do you do order something online? <laughs> yeah. And uh, oft, oftentimes it's a frustratingly amount of time I will go before I will actually order it online. You know, trying to see if I can find it in you know, a a natural grocery store or a more specialty store or the regular grocery store, whatever it is. And then I realized it was like, oh, I could literally type it in on Amazon and have it in two days. Right. And And not ever leave. And not ever leave. Wherever you're sitting. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, like I I, I find myself a a fairly uh, above average participant in in consumer culture. So I, Mm -hmm. I, I kind of like the going to a store and just looking around and staring off into space too. Yeah. I wasn't really thinking about kind of the grocery side so much, which is actually, I guess I think of that. See, I think part of it is historically, you know, I spent an enormous amount of time either working in or, or, uh, patronizing 
used record stores and used bookstores, which are still in existence, but really yeah. in kind of a very much smaller state than they used to be. And so it's 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 almost as if that whole part of the world has just like disappeared for yeah. various reasons. Yeah. No, I, I, I still love going to a local record store. So I keep sort of a, a, a list of records that if I run across, I'd like to have. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I just enjoy the, the serendipitous nature of, uh, you know, uh, looking through the, the, the new used bin of things that have just came in and seeing what's actually in a store itself. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's fun to me still. Well, I'm, I'm my father's child. So my version of that is I love going to the Goodwill when somebody's decided mm. to like dump their classical CD collection there you go. and there's all this incredible stuff for like two bucks a pop, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, because I, I have, uh, you know, that kind of like cultural hoarding tendency still there. Yeah, we, uh, and so I grew up going to like antique malls and flea markets and stuff like that with my dad, which oh, okay. I don't, I don't get to do as much, but yeah, like I, I, I am, uh, if I've got five minutes and I can dip into a pawn shop and just see like what, you know, instruments they've got on sale. I'm still really proud of this $13 microphone that I, that I found at a, at a pawn, pawn shop. So, well, I can, you know, the worst, I'll tell you about the worst impulse purchase that I ever made. I walked into a music store in Evanston, Illinois, as I was going to school there. And, uh, there was a hammer dulcimer. I don't know if you're familiar with those. They're a string instrument that's sort of where you've got oh, you yeah, know, yeah. Yeah, the full. Yeah. yeah. And um, I sat down and I played with it for a little while and I just fell so much in love with it and I bought it immediately. And I really kind of couldn't afford it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but but it just became, it was such a, there'd been some music that I was listening to that was kind of experimental music being done on hammer dulcimer. And I just got really intrigued with it and just, and I still actually have this. I don't really play it much anymore because it takes hours to tune and I'm just not that patient. So. Yeah. Hey, speaking, <laughs> but, speaking of just, just buying stuff and not being able to get rid of it. Uh, have you watched any of the, the Marie Kondo show on Netflix? I haven't. Have you? Uh, I haven't watched it. I mean, I think it's it maybe it's been on occasionally in the background. I have. I mean, I I think I feel like I understand the premise. Yeah. Of own less. Yes. Um. But no, I haven't. I haven't There's, watched yeah. it. Yeah. So. Yeah. There was. I kind of got the two sentence summary of what her approach was yeah. at one point, and it wasn't. I mean, I can see where it'd be really useful for a lot of people. Uh, and it, it actually has a connection to the other, the essentialism thing that I want to talk about too because part of what I think she's trying to do is advance the idea that you know you need to surround yourself with things that bring you joy that make your life better and find the things that don't and you know basically get them out of your way um, and a lot of this comes but, down but to, there's a limit yeah to it as well and there's limited to how many things should bring you joy it's not just surround you by happy things but at an unlimited quantity right right well that's yeah that's the whole problem because right. the the thousands of CDs that I own yeah. bring me joy <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that's definitely like violating the basic yeah. principle, I think. Uh, but my wife was telling me that she had read something or heard something that it, the, all the thrift stores are now getting all kinds of stuff because people are watching the show and then dumping it in thrift stores now. And so you might be finding a treasure trove. <laughs> so this is like Christmas for hoarders, there you basically. Go. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. Kind of a yeah. trick for your, for you to get all the stuff that you've ever wanted that people have been 
holding on to as long as possible. Yeah, the stuff, it's just, it's definitely not, I mean, it's something that you have to kind of, I think, break away from. I was going to mention kind of a, a side thing. There was a, a documentary that also premiered on um, public television this past week called Black Memorabilia. And uh, I know that if you happen to be a subscriber to public television, you can get access to this for a period of time. It ran, I think, uh, this past Monday night. And uh, the, the the just to give you a little bit of the description, our modern global economy connects disparate individuals in unexpected ways. At the intersection of international commerce, racial identity, and historical narrative, this story follows the propagation of demeaning representations of African Americans. From industrial China to the rural American South to contemporary Brooklyn, we observe the people and places that reproduce, consume, and reclaim black memorabilia. Um, so I don't know if you've ever spent much time in places where you find this stuff there's actually an artist um who i like quite a bit uh who's um who, whose work is uh charles is his last name and he does work that's based on the black memorabilia images um and he's actually done some of the illustrations for spike lee movies and things like that but it's this kind of fascinating history of representations that are still considered kind of desirable objects from people and uh i you know and, and of course when you go to other parts of the world they're they're there's much less consciousness so really offensive stuff gets reproduced pretty regularly but there's such a deep history of this in like coin banks and and little figures and of course you know some of the caricatures that we still find in food products now are still kind of the descendants of that the uncle ben's and the aunt jemima's and all that so anyway there's this documentary about it and um it's worth spending some time with. It's a really interesting subject to try to see how this stuff operates in this global economy now. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned uh, essentialism. What's that? I did. Okay, so uh, so there is uh, Greg McKeon is, um, I guess you could call him kind of a business consultant. I don't really know a whole lot about his biography. I probably should. But um, so he, ha he has this idea. Visionary. He's a vision. He's thinker. a consultant or something like that but uh author yeah, i guess author lecturer yeah <laughs> but, speaker so i've been going through this uh thing he wrote called essentialism and it, it, it there's some i think some interesting things about it that are interesting challenges because starting from the premise that we live in a media environment now that is just a mess of stuff all the time right we're constantly bombarded by advertising by information by the manipulation of information and um and what he's focused on in the book essentialism is really more about how you organize your work life mm -hmm. right so um uh, and and sort of at the front end of it, the thing that, of course, becomes most appealing is the idea that you really need to know how to make sure that you're seeing everything as a choice that you're making, not something you, you have to do, not things that are inherently good, and to say no. And saying no is a big, you know, it's a kind of a big challenge. The premise being that if you just keep saying yes to things, you might be thinking you're being a good cooperative employee and everything, but what you're doing is you're spreading yourself too thin. Sure. So instead of doing one or two things really well that are the high priority things that you need to do, you end up doing a dozen things kind of poorly. Um, so, If you were uh, to give your letter grade to yourself on how well you're doing in essentialism, 
How do you grade I'm, yourself? I'm, I would grade. I would put myself at a novice level that I'm just getting started because there's there's other, you know. So the, the 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 premises that are that are at the at the core of it, the essentialist approach he calls it, um, is um, explore and evaluate as a first step, eliminate as a second step, and execute as a third step. So explore and evaluate. Spend as much time as possible exploring, listening, debating, questioning, and thinking. Exploration is not an end in itself, but a way to discern the vital few from the trivial many. So that's, you're trying to sort out what's important. And it's sort of, you know, one way that he, kind of a thinking figure that he presents over and over again is put things on a one to 10 scale and get rid of everything that's not a 10. You know, just basically the idea is to clear out the, uh, and so I would put myself at the explore and evaluate part because I'm still trying to figure out how to sort this out. The second level, eliminate, active eliminating, actively eliminating activities and efforts that don't make the highest possible contribution or that are pulling your time away. And when it's pulling your time away, what he's very concerned about that I think is really respectable about what he does is what your and my priorities might be, right? Right. So how often does work start creeping into your personal life? And, you know, all of a sudden you have to, uh, the thing I was just listening to, you're being called in to do something on a Saturday. Sure. Right. And there's this expectation of cooperation. And part of what he insists is that the process of saying no, although it takes the social chance of annoying somebody for a short period of time in the long run will actually create respect back toward you because of your investment in your own priorities, which is then seen as a valuable thing. You know, what's interesting is I find these people who give advice uh, on to be less busy, incredibly busy people. (laughs) Like, what do you want to bet this guy's calendar is wall to wall meetings? Yeah. Yeah, it probably is. But but I'll bet he says no a lot, too. Yeah. And but his threshold for what makes him happy is different than ours, too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He probably he probably will he will take on a lot more. Yeah, he have to. He, he's. I mean, he, if you're going to be an author and a speaker, and you're speaking on something like this, uh, it's impossible to live that life where you are um, a bit hermity as well. Yeah, because you yeah. got to be out there. You got to be pounding the pavement and um, you know promoting your book and and probably doing things like podcasts you probably didn't want to do and interviews and stuff like that. Well, he did talk about how he created an email bounce back that was basically saying, I'm working on a book. I will try to get back to you when I can. So he really was trying to protect his time when he was writing this book. And in the book, he talks about what he does to protect this. I should probably say I am not a buyer into of of advice books, generally speaking. I'm very skeptical of them. But there were some things in this one. One of the things he emphasizes is what he refers to as taking care of the asset. In other words, how you treat yourself physically alludes to something we were talking about recently, that if you don't really take care of your physical health, it can cause problems. One of the things he emphasizes is we have a culture that has become obsessed with the idea that if you work as hard as you can and sleep as little as you can, that's a good thing. That's a valuable yeah. thing. And of course the physiological ramifications of that are terrible. Totally. Yeah. They, they will, I mean, you're, you're, you can spend all of your time being kind of in a state of half awake, half asleep because you're not getting enough sleep and you've got everybody kind of urging you on to say, you need to work as hard as possible all the time. Yeah. Which, you know. which is where it feels like cultural pressure is a, is a big player in this. I mean, we, we, genuinely say yes to things um not because for the sake of we believe it will uh you know impact our life on a more positive measure but because it'll it'll be it'll help somebody else right and that's a big part of what we're trying to do with a lot of things oh yeah yeah i wouldn't have said yes but so and so asked me and they're a good person and 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 so i you know i I committed to, to whatever it was right well and part of you know again what he talks about is trying to learn how to say no gracefully 
yeah. so that you're not, you know, so you're not being a jerk about it or anything like that, but you're trying to maintain, because there's a value in those personal relationships, but, you know, sometimes those are cases where you end up inheriting somebody else's problems, right? Yeah. It's, their, it's a problem they have to solve. They're pulling you in because you're good at solving problems like that. Then it depends on how much of it is a priority to you. Is it still their problem that you're trying to solve or does it become, if you're involved in an organization or a structure or something like that, where it really is something you have to worry about as well, then... Um, but you know, some of the, you know, again, going back in addition to this, like emphasis on sleep and also an emphasis on giving yourself. And, and again, I find this really appealing for lots of reasons, but giving yourself the time to be unbusy so that you can think creatively, um, to, I mean, the way it's sort of one way of thinking about it is in, in pre-digital times, allowing yourself to be bored because then you kind of can think abstractly yeah. about how to solve problems. And, and, that, and to go back to what we were originally mm-hmm. saying, this is why the mall exists for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I can just sort of walk around the mall and be uh, not, it, I, I don't know, I, I feel like there's per, certain people who this is not what they, what they have to do. But there are moments in time where I just have to remove myself from whatever space that I'm in yeah. and then take myself to a physical place where... You know, I can't get myself in trouble for because you know, I'm not I'm not gonna buy anything at the mall. Uh-huh. I, just, I, just, I don't. I'm not someone who walks into a place and must you know find something to purchase. But I can walk in and just aimlessly walk around. Have you? Do you do guilt? That, do you do guilt purchases at all? Do you ever? What's that? Like when you buy something and then you immediately regret it and. Then you kind of go back and forth about whether you should return it or keep it or love it or whatever. Yeah, I do, and um, I should say that oftentimes it, they're on the purchases that I've made. Like I will spend a ton of time researching something before I buy it. Mm-hmm. For, I don't know why, but you know there'll be like three different kinds of rain jackets or whatever that are out there. Yeah, and I will spend so much time, and I'll learn all about the material and the zippers and why the zippers are the best, and then you know the cost comparison and well, am I really buying the brand or am I buying the product itself? Uh, and is it hooded or just you know wh- whatever it is? I will go through so many different. Can I find it used on on eBay or or some other site? Do I need to buy it directly? Is there a coupon that I need to be waiting for? Uh, well, I don't get paid till this time of the month, and so I need to wait. You know, and I will go. I'll go all through this. Uh, and it will be like a, a three week period. And I'll eventually make a purchase or something like that. Uh, and then I, then, then I'm like, well, did I make the right purchase? You know, I, I, I didn't ever try on the other ones. So yeah, I, I totally do that. I fall yeah. into that all the time. So he, there was a, uh, the, uh, kid with the guy who wrote, uh, thinking fast, thinking slow. Danny Kahneman. An, yeah. Kahneman did an experiment once that, that, and, um, the, in, in essentialism, he actually talks about this experiment where he took a class of students and he gave half of them a kind of nice coffee mug and he didn't give the other half the coffee mug, but they all knew that half of them got the coffee mug. And then he asked, he went and he asked them, asked the ones who had the coffee mug, how much would you sell it for? And then he asked the ones who didn't have the mugs, how much would you buy it for? Mm. And, and, um, the people who had the mugs, the, the, their price point was about twice what people would actually pay for it. Oh, and part of what he's, I think trying to point out is how, um, you know, this idea that when you own something, you have this kind of inflated sense of its value, like it's worth more to you because you own it. 
um, and what and what is so what is typically called a sunk cost bias, which is the tendency to continue to invest time, money, or energy into something we know is a losing proposition simply because we've already incurred or sunk a cost that cannot be recouped. And totally. he talks about the talks about the Concorde, the amount yeah. of money that was spent between Britain and France to, you know, to to develop this plane that could get from London, New York, and you know, like three hours basically cut the time in half. But it was so enormously expensive; it was not not practical, and eventually died. But you know, but it was again that thing where, like, we, when you've started to invest time and money in something, or you already own something, then you end up kind of inflating its value, right? The the, the idea that you're it's bad money after bad, basically. Right. Um, so, you know, again, he's got his, I love behavioral economics, this stuff. And this is why Freakonomics is like the, you know, the top podcast. Yeah. It's really, I've learned a lot from, you know, of of how to think about these things and maybe not so much of my own behavior as much as sort of like thinking about other people, which is a natural behavioral economics tendency too, right? The third person effect. Yeah, totally. And an academic. Right. Yeah. It's like try to remove yourself and and act like you're just studying the world. It's other people that are chumps. I'm, I'm not a chump. Chump, though. I'll, I'll still eat Doritos, but I'm no chump. <laughs> so anyway, so, so I found, I, I found for me, essentialism was, so I'm, so in answer to your question about where I am, I'm at the early stages and my life is a cluttered mess. You know, there's just a lot going on. And the idea that you can pare things down to do something really well is very appealing. So I'm going to work on that. There you go. I'm going to try to eliminate. Do you feel cluttered? Do you feel like you've got, you're being pulled in too many different directions? Um, from a from a, a physical things I own or just my 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 work state. Yeah. How you well? Like, I mean, I literally have multiple titles. At, right. You know, at, at the place I work, so yes. I'm I'm overextended by a, a, a significant measure, and anybody right. who who knows me would probably say that's probably true. But I also can get incredibly bored very quickly just doing one task. Yeah. Uh, and so I really love balancing having multiple duties and in, in multiple places and multiple spaces in which I get to play. So I, I feel like I'm a, a little bit on the high functioning side where it doesn't stress me out, but there are definitely periods or moments in time where things start to stack up um, that really start to start to mess with me emotionally. And those are the moments where, like I said, um, I can, I, I can, uh, uh get through a lot of things by, um, going to the gym, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and relieving stress that way. Uh, making sure, uh, I'm eating well because if I'm, if I'm, I can, I'm, uh, a chronic binger, you know, if I'm stressed out. Yeah. Uh, and if I, if I'm not doing that, I'm, I'm a lot better. And then also, like I said, just sort of like giving myself 15 minutes where I just, you know, aimlessly walk somewhere yeah. or just like get up, you know? And so I, I, I am not someone to sit at my computer all day. I can't do it. So I, one of the reasons I love working on a college campus, uh, as opposed to like, you know, a suburban business park is that I can escape by just simply saying, Oh, you know what? I need a coffee and a coffee is about yeah. a quarter mile away. So I'm just going to go walk to the coffee shop, clear my head, you know, grab a coffee and walk back. And that's, that's enough to like completely recharge me for the rest of the day. So, so so when you're, when you're deciding on a walking route, yeah. What, what, what's the emphasis? What are you trying to find when you pick a route? 
Like, do you decide what's the shortest distance between mm. two points or is there a size? I'm, I'm raising this because yeah. the, it, it came up in a class recently and one of the students was saying, you know, he was talking about how he, there are particular things, and campus environment, I mean, we're very right. lucky because being in campus environments are, they're beautiful places to be usually. And, uh, but there were a particular, like there's a fountain, he said, and yeah. if I know the fountain's on, I always like, even though it's out of my way, I like to walk by it. That's interesting. It just makes me feel better about the world. Yeah. You know? Um, I get cold easily, yeah. so I'm looking for routes that have sunlight um, or through buildings. But, uh-huh. but but I do not like to walk in between buildings because they're completely shaded and cold. And uh-huh. I, you know, so those are things that I'm looking for. It's like I I just I just want to be on the sun. I want to be getting my vitamin D. Or, yeah. So or uh-huh. E or A or whatever vitamin that you get for the sun. <laughs> I'm looking for vitamins. Is what I'm doing. What about vitamin there? R, which as you'll recall was one of the main components of rat milk. If you're a uh-huh. Simpsons fan, when when they found out that the uh, the milk that they were serving in the cafeteria was actually rat milk being produced by organized crime. <laughs> Deep cut. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, but no, it, it can be. I I want to literally I'm on the third floor of the building here. And, um, you know, just going down the first floor to the Coke machine is enough for me. Just, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I love this to get up and, and take a quick walk and, and, and find some kind of brain fuel somewhere and, and then yeah. just make my way back to my office. So yeah, yeah. that's, that, that's how I recoup from it. But, but, uh, but yeah, occasionally I'll get overwhelmed and, and completely emotionally shut down too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. No, I think it's important to be, and, and I, you know, as we were having this conversation, I was thinking, this is making me more conscious of how I make these decisions too, which is, I guess, the reason this essentialism material w- was striking to me is because it was really kind of making me think, what are the priorities that make me uh, make decisions about what I'm yeah. going to do? And that it could be like practically useful advice for other people too. Because I've talked about this in my classes a little bit in terms of of, you know, kind of organizing what your priorities are, particularly because occasionally, you know, the workload that you're under when you're involved in something like, you know, video production or something like that, you have too many things going on at once and you end up sort of picking which one is going to be the one you're going to do well or at your best. And then the others kind of suffer. And some of that I think is maybe a consequence of not taking advantage of all the opportunities we have to choose things and and to occasionally say no. Oh, totally. And, And it's, uh, people working in media, one of the hardest things to do is, I mean, everyone, everyone thinks of themselves as uh, a producer, right? Like they think of themselves at the center of the map and sort of in charge of things. Right. And to understand how to be like a role player in a, in, in a project that's going to require oftentimes a hundred people to touch it, to get it completed. Yeah. Uh, and to, and to know, uh, when to let go of sort of, you know, feeling like you have to impart your specific aesthetic on it or yeah. that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's not up to what you call portfolio standard or whatever it is. I think it's an important lesson for students to learn. Yeah. One of the other, one of the other points that McKeon makes, that's directly relevant actually, because he's pulling it from media is about how to think about editing. Mm-hmm. And um, because, you know, it, in, in many ways, and there's, you know, you can talk about the conventionality of this and everything, but when an editor has done their work really well, you don't see what they did. Right, totally. Right? Because, uh, you know, for, for somebody who's writing fiction, the idea is, you know, have you written this as clearly as you possibly can? 
and only at whatever length is necessary to do that. Uh, or, and you know, when you're, when you're watching a, a very conventional, he talks about Steven Spielberg's editor, when you're watching it, you're not conscious of the editing. So it's like their work is at its best when you're not even thinking about it, which is kind of an interesting, you know, it's sort of like, it's like this product of taking yourself out of the, the limelight in order to make all the other pieces, you know, come together in the best way they possibly can. Totally. So, yeah. Yeah. And and that what's the phrase like kill your babies or is that, is that right? Kill your darlings. Darlings. Yeah, yeah. That's babies a, was the wrong yeah, word. No, it's a Stephen King thing that he actually kill makes reference darlings. to in the book also. It's just just and you have to do it. And given the Stephen King's darlings are sometimes a thousand pages. Yeah, he's okay with killing babies. <laughs> you can things. imagine yeah, all that's happened. So uh but anyway, I liked I like thinking about editing in in that kind of a way too, as sort of somebody who's who's effort is to help other people's work be at its best. So. Yeah. Cool. Well, is that it? Is that all we got I think for today? so. Yeah. Right. I think that's what we'll do. We'll work on our essentialism and uh, see it if down we can just a little bit today. eliminate, try to say no to something. I try to say no to something today. Maybe a donut. Hey, it, <laughs> is media in the end of the world a 10 in your book? It is absolutely is it, a 10, I think. Good it's, deal. It's, I think uh, it's a big deal. All yeah. right. Let's hope so. It is for our listeners too. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Take it easy. Thank mm-hmm. you.